I have uh, been reminded as we sing the song, as we sang the song of how, in, how, how exactly will we sing of God's grace when we will be on the other side of eternity. It's amazing as we will have the whole grand picture of the past. I look forward to that day. Well, this morning, as we have already sung of God's grace, as we have uh, rehearsed of God's mercies, as we have heard of God's testimony of His grace in the life of, of, uh, of Drake Greensign, I encourage you and invite you to open Scripture to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20. Uh, we will be reading from verse 17 to 38. Um, this morning, we continue our sermon series through the book of Acts. And uh, this uh, day in particular is the second sermon on this passage. Um, We'll have a few more sermons on this very passage. So next week, we'll read this passage again and and continue. But um, this morning, if you did not bring your Bible, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 929. Let's open God's Word together and let's prepare our hearts for the reading of his word for us this morning. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and for faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, help me speak plainly your words, not my own ideas or wisdom, but your decrees, which are authoritative for each and every one of us, including for me. Lord, let your word feed our souls, nourish us spiritually, so that we may be fit for every good work for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Christ and through the presence and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, the passage we are considering this morning is part of the, or is the farewell speech that Paul gave to the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He spent three years in that church, the longest time he spent in any church. Paul tells them that they will see his face for the last time. A sad moment. But also this tells us of the, the magnitude, the importance of this last speech, of this last set of instructions that Paul will give to this church, to, to the elders, to the leaders of this church. So he called them not just to say goodbye to them, but he called them also to give them final encouragement of what they should do as spiritual leaders of the church. What the spiritual leaders of the church of Ephesus were responsible um, and, and what they were supposed to do, this speech makes it clear. But as we will see this morning, this speech, this final farewell that Paul gives them is filled also with reminders of Paul's own ministry among them. Paul will sort of recount his ministry in Ephesus. What will he talk about? Three years. God had used Paul to do some great, amazing miracles. If you remember a few weeks ago as we went through some of those stories, Paul would have had lots of things to talk about and recount on, in this last farewell speech. What will he include this time? We notice that one of the things that Paul comes back to over and over again in the sphere of speech is actually his teaching ministry. It's how Paul taught them, what Paul declared to them, what Paul testified to them, what Paul declared and proclaimed and admonished while he was among them. When, when, we see, when we look at this review of Paul's ministry, as Paul simply recounts his work among them, the highlight is actually we see a distinct picture of the Christian message that Paul 
spoke to them in Ephesus. Yes, the Christian church in Ephesus came into being because of Paul's teaching ministry. And under his pastoral ministry and leadership, this church grew. But how did it happen? It happened through the teaching of the Word of God. This is what Paul emphasized as he recounted his own, his own pastoral ministry in Ephesus. The distinct message of the Christian church. So that's why I, I entitled my message this morning, The Distinct Message of the Christian Church. And because I want to be faithful to God's Word, I found eight characteristics in this passage. Now put that in a sermon. I actually have eight points in my sermon today. Um, but just to ease your, your anxiety, um, I will cut this sermon in half. Um, so we'll just be going through the first four points, hopefully, if not just three. Um, we'll just go through the first few points, and then we'll finish the sermon next time. Because all these points are important, and I, I didn't want to just go so quickly through them that we, we don't realize the weightiness of what Paul is speaking. After all, this is his farewell sermon. And he's re recounting what was most important in his three-year ministry in the, in the church where he stood the longest. So I, I want us to give adequate time and attention to it. So here's, here's the eight characteristics. Here's the first one. If you like taking notes, um, here's the first point. The distinct message of the Christian church, number one, involves oral proclamation. Involves oral proclamation. Some Christians today uh, would love to be involved in proclaiming the message of Christ as long as they don't have to say anything. You know what I'm talking about? They would love to, to, be, to proclaim the message of the gospel by just living differently. Now, now don't get me wrong. Um, um, it's important to live differently. As a matter of fact, um, if you don't live differently, if you don't live according to the message which we proclaim, we actually discredit the very message we proclaim. So how we live is, is very important. As a matter of fact, Paul, in, in verse 18, look at verse 18. The first thing he says is, you know how I lived among you. Paul recounts his own way of life among them. So, so it's not that how we live is not important. But what I want to say to you is that Paul did not limit his ministry only to the example of his living. Friends, friends, Paul would have not started the church in Ephesus if all he did was to live differently. Look at all the verbs in this passage that describe what exactly Paul did in his teaching ministry. Follow with me. I'll, I'll just take you through a bunch of verses. Follow with me and look at verse 20, the first verse. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you. Declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you. Then look at verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Testifying. Look at verse 24. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. Look at verse 25, the second half of 25. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Look at verse 27. 
I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And finally, look at verse 21, uh, 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Do you see what Paul is emphasizing? What are, what are the verbs that Paul is emphasizing as he is describing his own ministry in Ephesus? There, all these verbs are verbs about proclaiming, speaking, getting words out of our mouth. It was simply a ministry of, of speaking the message of God, a message from God for the people of Ephesus. Now, it's true that if, we, if, we don't, if you don't also keep an eye on how we live, that which we speak may be, may be discredited. But, friends, the church often, these days at least, has, has swung the pendulum back to focusing so much on, on how we live that we actually forget to speak about the truth that, that leads us to, to live differently. There is today an over-obsession with just living the truth without proclaiming it or about being compassionate without actually speaking the gospel. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning and you're seeking to reach out to your friends, I want to break, down, break out to you this news. You must open your mouth to speak to them God's word. You, you simply must. You, you can't spend all your time just invest, investing in, in developing a friendship while your mouth is, is silent and shut about the things of God. It's not enough simply to build a friendship. I wonder who are the people in your circle of influence with whom you need to break the ice and actually talk to them about the Word of God, about spiritual things. Who are the people around you that you must start engaging them with God's Word? The distinct message of Christianity must be spoken, declared, taught, testified, proclaimed, and used for our admonishment. The second point about the distinct message of Christianity is that it is taught in public and in private. It's taught in public and in private. Look at verse 20. Paul says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Notice that Paul's ministry was not limited only to the teaching in public places. He was also teaching in people's homes as Paul taught them, as Paul met them personally. This is one of the reasons why we encourage us to do, we encourage you to do home groups. Learn God's Word in your homes as well as you gather together. As we gather either one-on-one -on -one or in, in small groups outside of our public gatherings of the church. This is one of the reasons why I encourage you as members of the congregation to be meeting one-on-one -on -one with other people. It is one of the, one of the priorities I put in my own a weekly schedule to be meeting with people one-on-one -on -one and, and talking to them about spiritual things, about what's going on in their lives spiritually, and encouraging them in the things of God. But the distinct message of the Christian church must be communicated both in public when we're gathered in a place like this, but also in private. Now, what does that mean to you? I wonder 
I wonder if you're a Christian or if you're the kind of Christian who only likes the public teaching venues. You, you, only, you only like engaging with God's Word in, in public and not in private, not in your home or not one-on-one. -on -one. Do you engage with others in learning God's Word, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week? Or is your life such that your only engagement with God's Word and with other Christians about God's Word is only on Sundays? Or, or think about the evangelism approach that we have as a congregation. Do we rely only on the public evangelism of the church when we are gathered? We, we want to do that, but is that it? Or do we engage with people one-on-one -on -one in discussing God's Word and teaching them the gospel one-on-one -on -one throughout the week, wherever we are? You see, Paul's ministry was described by this commitment to teach God's Word both in public and in private. I want to ask you if, if that's true of, of you, especially the private part. Or perhaps you're the kind of Christian who only likes to do it in private and you never gather with, with people publicly. You, you, don't, you don't think that's important. And you think that just a private part is enough. Notice that Paul had both elements together, both the public and the private. Point number three. The distinct message of Christianity, of the Christian church, calls for repentance and faith. The distinct message of the Christian church calls for repentance and faith. Notice the content of what Paul taught and declared and testified. Look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, it's amazing that Paul's first summary of the content of what he taught is that he testified of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this means that the distinct Christian message, the distinct message of the Christian church is not just a good news. It is good news. As a matter of fact, it's great news. But it's not just great news. It's a news that calls people to respond to it. As a matter of fact, it's only great news if people respond to it. Otherwise, it is very bad news. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, it is very, in chapter 2, it is very bad news if, if you choose not to respond to it. That's why Paul's teaching involved a clear call to respond to this news, to this great news. I love how J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, how he says the following, Since a divine message finds its climax in a plea from the Creator to a rebel world, to turn and put faith in Christ, the delivering of this news involves the summoning of one's hearers to conversion. If you are not, in this sense, seeking to bring about conversions, you're not evangelizing. My friend, how often 
we find it easier to tell people about the love of God and then stop there. And we don't tell them what they must do to respond to God's gracious love. We fail to tell them that they must respond to God's message of salvation. Now, Paul is not just giving an invitation to these hearers in the sense of asking them, would you like to receive Jesus in your heart today and ask them to raise a hand or walk down the aisle? Friends, first of all, such ideas were totally foreign in the New Testament. They appeared on the history of Christianity only two centuries ago. That's not the kind of invitation. That's not the kind of response Paul made known to the, to the Ephesians. Paul instead made it clear how they must respond to the gospel. And here is a response to the gospel that we, we must testify. It's a response of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that it's not just faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also repentance toward God. These two belong together. They are never to be separated. Never. Ever. Friend, if you're not a Christian, let me, I'd like to address you in, in, a, in a second or just specifically. I wonder if, as you hear this language about needing to respond to this good news, I mean, what kind of good news is it if it demands you to respond um, I, I want to I make, make sure you understand what this gospel news is and why it's critical that we call people to respond to it. And the answer is this, that humanity, humanity has fallen away from God, our Creator, and our Father. Therefore, humanity is under the wrath of God. And therefore, we are accountable to a perfectly, perfectly good judge. This humanity has this great problem that we are actually at enmity, at war with the very one who created us and who owns us and who has rights over us. This is humanity's greatest problem. And unless man turns to him, turns to God, man has no eternal hope. God's solution, however, God's greatest solution for our problem is God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. God provided a way from this great, for this great problem of humanity. And that solution is is that Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to earth so that by dying on the cross, he took upon himself the guilt of those who would respond to him. By, by resurrecting from the dead, he provided and he proved that he's able to conquer sin and death for us. By sending to his Father, he proved that he will reign forever and ever, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Well, friends, that's why we call you to respond to this news. Because if you don't respond, when he comes again, you will be the object of his judgment, not of his grace. Today is a day of being an object of God's grace. Today is a day of, of returning to God by embracing his grace. You can repent toward God and trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, even as you hear these words. If you desire to respond and, and reorient your life toward God, I pray that you would consider God's offer of salvation today. And if you'd like to know more about this, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or you might ask Drake, because he experienced it in his life as we heard it already. But friends, we must testify. That's why we call people to respond. We must testify about both repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me speak to, to believers. When we call people to respond to the gospel, we must make it clear that it's not just faith in the Lord Jesus, as if it's just some mental assent, but it's repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why both? Why do we need to include both? And by the way, they're not two separate things. They're part of the one response to the gospel. Why must we have both? Because sin turned us away from God. Sin not only corrupted us, but worse, sin turned us against God and triggered God's judgment against us. But the message of God caused us to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn back towards God. That's why repentance is repentance toward God. You know, friends, there's today kind of repentance that is not Christian repentance. There's a kind of there, there, are different, there are different kinds of repentances, and, and many of them are not Christian versions of repentance. And I, want to, I want to be very clear about the distinct kind of Christian repentance that's part of the Christian message. Christian repentance is not simply about feeling miserable about yourself. There's lots of people who feel miserable or ashamed or guilty. There are lots of people who feel that way, but that's not necessarily because of Christian repentance. It could be because of self-pity, or they could be feeling that because of fear of consequences, or shame of, of their new reputation for what they've done. Christian repentance is when our shame and guilt is caused because we've encountered a holy God. Christian repentance is when we see ourselves miserable because we realize that we have fallen away from the glory of God. Christian repentance is directed toward God. Christian repentance reorients our lives toward God. Fake repentance are tears and emotions that actually do not reorient our lives toward God. We can have all the emotions and tears in this world and yet, our lives may never turn toward God. That's just emotionalism. Pop psychology tells us that um, we must forgive ourselves. And we must forgive our past. It tells us that we shouldn't be that hard on ourselves. That we should accept ourselves. Friends, that's the biggest lie. According to such a suggestion... Repentance is toward ourselves. But the Christian message, the distinct Christian message, calls us to repent toward God. He is the offended party, not us. He is the one we have wronged. 
It is His judgment that we must face unless we repent toward Him. That's why repentance toward God means that our sin has been against God. So that repentance brings us back to the God we have insulted. That's why when we teach the gospel, we should tell people to respond, not simply by inviting Jesus in their hearts. Actually, that phrase has lots of problems with it. If you want to know the problems with that phrase, come and talk to me at the end of the service. But rather than speaking those kind of modern-day inventions of responding to the gospel, we should rather go back to the biblical language and simply use this call and testify to people of their need to repent toward God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I wonder when was the last time that you've asked someone to respond to the gospel by telling them you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. I love Spurgeon. You know, Spurgeon is really good on, on things like this. But he said about, about this topic, about this theme, that conversion which is all joy and lacks sorrow for sin is very questionable. Let me repeat that again. All, that conversion which is, which is all joy and lacks sorrow for sin is very questionable. That's why one of the things I was so encouraged when I heard Drake's testimony for the first time in the office a few weeks ago. He, he said that at that camp experience was the first time when he developed a grieving or a grieving for his sin. That's what true conversion does. It first moves us to grieve for our sin. Let me continue with Spurgeon's comment. I will not believe in that faith which has no repentance with it any more than I would believe in that repentance which left a man without faith in Jesus. Like the two cherubs which stood gazing down upon the mercy seat, so stand these two inseparable graces, and none must dare to remove the one or the other. Friends, this is why, as, as your pastor, I have cautioned us that someone's decision for God may not be true without repentance. And we shouldn't believe it if, if there's no signs of repentance or if there's no act of repentance in the process. And that repentance that reorients our lives toward God, that is, the, that is the kind of faith, the saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the kind of faith that reorients our lives in repentance toward God. That's why, dear friends, when, when you tell someone what it means to respond to the gospel, tell them, the full biblical response, that they must repent toward God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both are hanged together, belong to each other. But, but repentance and faith together is not just for, for, for new believers or those who come to Christ. It's also for the life of the Christian until he, he goes to be with God. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is something which should continue in the life of the believer. Again, Spurgeon, let me quote, let me, let me let his words minister to us because he was such an encouragement to me this week as I prepare for this message. Spurgeon said, I fear that some people fancy that they repented when they were first converted and that therefore they have done with repentance. But it is not so. The higher the faith, the deeper the repentance. The saint most ripe for heaven is the most aware of his own shortcomings. When you have grown too big for repentance, depend upon it. You have grown too proud for faith. 
They that say that they have ceased to repent confess that they have departed from Christ. Repentance and faith will grow each one as the other grows. The more you know the weight of sin, the more you will lean upon Jesus. And the more you know his power to uphold, when repentance measures a cubit, faith will measure a cubit also. Repentance also increases faith. Beloved, we never believe in Christ to the full till we get a clear view of our need of him. And that is the fruit of repentance. When we hate sin more, we shall love Christ more and trust him more. The more self sinks, the more Christ rises. Like the two scales of balance, one must go down that the other may go up. Self must sink in repentance that Christ may rise by faith. Moreover, repentance salts faith and sweetens it, and faith does the same to repentance. You see how these two belong together? Actually, when we hold them together, that's when we grow deeper in both. Friends, I'll close my message here at this point, just with point three. The distinct message of the Christian faith involves oral proclamation. The distinct message of the Christian church is taught both publicly and privately. The distinct message of the Christian faith calls for repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be true of the message we proclaim, both individually and corporately together as a church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have kept a record of Paul's own ministry in Ephesus and what was his distinct message as he preached for three years in that city and as, as you used that preaching to build up your church, as you called sinners to respond through repentance and faith. Oh Lord, would you make that distinct message to be true of what we make known in Austin, in our neighborhoods, through the ministry of this church, through our own lives. Father, we pray that we would be faithful witnesses to the distinct message which you have revealed for us and to the distinct call which you give to all mankind to embrace you by turning towards you trusting in Christ for their salvation. Oh, Lord, as we continue our service, as we continue to testify to your grace through the ministry of baptism, we pray that you would be glorified among us. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.